On the cold Monday morning of March 11, 1748, before the sun was even visible, George Washington and George Fairfax Esquire set out on the 18th century version of a road trip to help survey land owned by George Fairfax's cousin, Lord Fairfax, in the forests of the Ohio Valley. It was exactly the same as a road trip would be today, except, of course, there were no roads. And chances were, they'd run into Indians. And no, not the politically correct Native Americans you may have heard about in school. These were real Indians, drunk, with tomahawks, carrying scalps. Spoiler alert! I said chances were they might run into these sorts of people. But do you really think I'd have said it if they weren't going to? Having the almost magical advantage of hindsight, I can assure you that indeed, mere moments from now, these are precisely the people that the ill-prepared 17-year-old George is about to run into. Hold on to your hats. Better yet, hold on to your scalps. George Washington had impressed his neighbors, the Fairfaxes, that he was a rising star who could help George Fairfax Esquire return from a surveying trip into the wilderness with his scalp still attached to his head. George's slightly older contemporary, George William Fairfax, was richer in money but was less heroic in every other way than George Washington. It was a plus that George Washington was studying surveying, but the real reason the Fairfaxes asked him to go on the trip was that in addition to having cultivated their friendship, he was clearly already a great teenager, if not yet a great man. He was better on his horse than his friends were on theirs, larger than almost anyone in Virginia, brave, and heroic. The Fairfaxes thought themselves fortunate to have Big George help them with their business and perhaps protect their own smaller George. George's interest in surveying, though it wasn't the selling point for the Fairfaxes, was the primary reason George wanted to go on this trip. He wanted experience in applying the most important skill he was learning at his country school. In a land-based economy, being a surveyor was as useful as being a stock analyst would be today. But slightly more exciting, as instead of water cooler breaks, George would be thrown into the water and almost drown. More on that later, too. Hold on to your boat, with the hand that's not busy holding on to your scalp. With no banks as we know them today, and money so rare that debts and bills were often paid with promissory notes passed around from man to man in lieu of cash, despite the very real risk that these could become worthless should the originator fall on hard times, the most stable wealth was land. You might grow crops with the help of your slaves, hire your land out to others, or sell it. But one way or another, land, not cash or stocks or bonds, was the way to acquire wealth in colonial Virginia. Potentially, by picking the right pieces of real estate at the right time, you might even get rich. Not that being rich was the point. That's a modern corruption. In George Washington's day, being rich was only a necessary stepping stone along the path to the real goal, being a great man, a gentleman. Having land, having wealth, having fine things, all those were the accounterments of being a great man. But the ultimate goal was to be someone like the Duke in the panegyric, not to have a number on a piece of paper with lots of zeros after it or even having the trappings of wealth. Still, George understood the inevitable importance of land in the equation of greatness in colonial Virginia, and also understood that the way to get land and advance in life was to make the right friends. Generally, this meant people with land, who also tended to be the people with political, social, and business connections. To make the right kind of friends, the right attitude for the up-and-coming young man was friendly, but deferential, along the lines of the Duke's affable, candid, and obliging nature in the panegyric. From our perspective, this may sound a bit smarmy. Though just wait a minute and you'll see how much smarmier people in the 18th century could be. Today, we think of real friends and people who use other people as polar opposites. This is an odd and very modern distinction. Wouldn't we all be glad to be of use to our friends? 
to do anything good for them, especially if they're real friends? We have been brainwashed to think it is fair to get a job by our merit, and unfair to get a job by our connections, when merit really just means answering questions on a test, or getting a parchment which certifies that we have answered questions on even more tests. We complain about favoritism, but who made the rule that being socially adroit is a lesser talent, or a worse measure of someone's overall worth, than taking boxes on exam forms? In colonial Virginia, your social skills were seen as part of your real merit, along with your intelligence and your physical strength. It was, if you consider the times, a new, different, and liberating state of affairs to be able to succeed in this way, on your real value as a man, rather than on inherited titles and family wealth.